Uh, okay, we're going to jump into our passage this morning uh, with a little story. Young ones, if I could have your attention, I'm going to tell you what this passage is going to be about in Matthew chapter 5, and uh, then what the sermon is going to be about. And I'm going to tell you a true story. This is a true story. I'm not making this up. True story. There, uh, there was this bridge in Connecticut, was this bridge up in Connecticut, uh, and there was this really, really bad storm. And this guy is driving along the road, and he knows he's coming up to this bridge because he just knows the road really, really well. Uh, and, and he sees something really, really awful, really, really strange, really, really scary. Uh, he sees in the distance. You can't see the bridge in the distance uh, even when it's daylight. You'd like, you just get to this bridge that goes over this huge like valley gorge thing. <clears throat> you just know you're on the bridge when you're on the bridge. kind of comes out of nowhere. So he's driving along, and he knows the bridge is coming up because he knows the road, and he sees these cars in front of him suddenly disappear. It's dark. It's really dark. There's a bad storm, but he sees their taillights, you know, those red lights. He just sees them just suddenly disappear. He knows something is wrong, and so the car that's right in front of him, he starts to slow down. The car right in front of him suddenly disappears, and he stops Slams on his brakes, gets out of the car. He walks up like just a few feet in front of him up to the bridge, and the bridge is gone. The storm has wiped out the bridge, and, and there's no bridge. And all those cars that were in front of them went off into the gorge and lost their lives. It was terrible. And he realizes what's happening, and he turns around. He gets in his car, and he turns it around, and he starts flashing his, his lights and his beams at people that are driving up. And he's yelling at them, stop, 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 the bridge is out. He's running down the highway saying, stop, stop. And people start to stop, and they pull over. Except one car is full of young teenagers. This, this car is driving by, and he's yelling at them to stop, and they roll down their windows, and they yell mean things at him. And they keep driving. And he runs after them, yelling, the bridge is out, the bridge is out, stop, stop. And they don't stop. That really, really hard thing is a picture for us of what it is to tell people about Jesus in the world today. And it's a hard thing because some people in this world, they don't want to hear about the gospel. And they'll say mean things to you about the gospel. They'll say mean things to you about Jesus. And what are we supposed to do? Tell them about Jesus. What else can we do? except show them love and show them grace because if they don't have Jesus, they'll be lost forever. And that this is what Jesus is going to give us. This It's a weird command that Jesus is going to give us today. He's going to say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, which sounds crazy. We're supposed to love those who hate us? Yes. Hating others is not good for our enemies. Hating our enemies, that's not good for our enemies. And you hear that and you're like, duh, that's the point. But, then, but we're supposed to remember, God, we just said this in our confession, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have to remember the only reason we hear, all of us, any of us, the only reason any of us is not God's enemy is because of Jesus, because Jesus lived for us, and he died for our sins. 
we here, nobody deserves God's love and salvation. We've been totally saved by grace, and we're supposed to hold out Jesus' grace to all people, even our enemies. And if you know Jesus' love, you can love everybody, anybody, even your enemy. <clears throat> That's what we're going to learn today. That's what Jesus is going to proclaim today uh, in his word. We're in our series in the, <coughs> excuse me, in the Sermon on the Mount. And we come to this part in the Sermon on the Mount with a series of commands. <clears throat> These commands are for members of the church. That's who Jesus is talking to. And what Jesus said earlier in his sermon, this is a long sermon, we're taking it in chunks. What Jesus said earlier in his sermon gives us the context to understand what Jesus is saying <clears throat> and what he's not saying. When he says, you have heard it said, which is what we're going to hear in just a minute, he's quoting directly from the Old Testament. But he's not contradicting the Old Testament. This is really important. He's not contradicting the Old Testament like it was wrong or like he's adding some correction to the Old Testament law as if the New Covenant and the Old Covenant had different standards of holiness. <clears throat> but he is, what he is doing, he's not contradicting, he's contrasting New Covenant situation of the church with the Old Covenant situation of the theocracy of Israel. And the question is, as you get into this Sermon on the Mount, is how to apply the same standards of holiness and the same ethics in different situations, different conditions. With that, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to start <clears throat> in Matthew 38, uh, but really the focus is 43 to 48. I'm sorry, I've got coffee in the back of my throat. One thing. <coughs> okay, <clears throat> here we go. The reading of God's Word. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. <clears throat> but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Please be seated. Okay, just got to get right into it. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Is that true? Did God actually command hating your enemy in the Old Testament? Yes. I mean, does the, so the Old Testament, does it ever say to hate your enemy? Yes. It says it to Israel over and over. You guys remember the Canaanite conquest? <clears throat> Deuteronomy 7, verse 2 says, When the Lord your God, this is God, when the Lord your God gives the Canaanites over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. The Canaanites were the object of God's wrath. Israel was not allowed to show them mercy. They had to show them hate. 
in Psalms, you get to the Psalms, maybe you'll have come across some of these Psalms, like Psalm 7, 35, 55, 59, 69, 79, 109, Psalm 137. The psalmist talks about hating God's enemies. Do I not hate your enemies? As an expression of faith, as an expression of faithfulness. And not only did God command Israel to wipe out their enemy in the land of Canaan, he empowered them to do it supernaturally. Here's an elephant in the room for all of us who claim the Old Testament as part of our Bible. How do we reconcile this ethic that's given to the church, love your enemy, and the ethic of Old Testament Israel, destroy your enemy? There's well-known atheist Richard Dawkins. He calls the Israelite conquest of Canaan an ethnic cleansing. He says, the big problem is that whether true or not, the Bible is held up to us as a source of our morality, as a source of our ethics. And the invasion of the promised land is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacre of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. The Bible may be an arresting and poetic work of fiction, but it is not the sort of book you should give your children to form their morals. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Biblical scholars and Christians have come up with different theories and ways to try to explain how God could command the conquest of the Canaanites, how he could command Israel to go in and wipe them all out. One one attempt to explain this is, uh, scholars, you know, uh, people in the church have said these historical accounts, they're exaggerated, you know, of the Canaanite conquest. They're exaggerated. They're not super accurate. The way it went down was not that horrific. Or uh, one attempt is to say, well, these accounts about the conquest, they're totally fictional, and you can't believe everything you read in the Bible. Or they'll say, biblical scholars, people in the church, the horrific conquest is acceptable according to principles of just war theory, and with war, there's always collateral damage and the loss of innocent lives. Try as they might. Those are all really bad answers. The Bible does not give the, uh, the Bible, sorry, the Bible does give the historical and horrific account. It did happen. We can't sweep it under the rug as if it didn't. And if Israel's conquest of Canaan were to be tried today in the International Court of Justice, like in The Hague, where nations can complain against other nations, for unprovoked aggression, they would be found guilty of genocide. Just war theory does not explain the putting to death of men, women, children, livestock, and the total destruction of property. The only explanation for the conquest of Canaan is is that ever 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 since the beginning of creation, if mankind had done what he was created to do to love God, to love others, Judgment Day would have been an awesome day for everybody. Glorious for everybody. But when mankind fell at the fall, 
and our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, that judgment, day, that judgment day became really, really bad news. A day that we're not looking forward to. Right after Satan deceives Adam and Eve in the garden there in Genesis 3, God shows up in awful terror. Uh, I know it says in the cool of the day. That's, that's, that's a poor translation. The easiest one is the simple uh, one, which is in the spirit. Uh, God showed up in the spirit of the day. And Adam and Eve ran because God shows up in judgment. And what God could have done right then, right there, is he could have ended it all. That could have been the end of the story of mankind. <clears throat> that was supposed to be judgment day. Uh, so, like, you think, we, we, we sit there and we think, God, when we read about the Canaanites and, like, the conquest, like, that's crazy. You think that's crazy? You think that's awful? That there is anything after the fall is crazy is amazing. This amazing thing happens in Genesis 3 right after the fall. God shows up and He delays final judgment. God graciously allows the world to continue and He, he allows mankind to continue. He allows history to continue and to unfold so that, there's a purpose, He delays judgment <clears throat> so that there can be a people he allows history to keep going so that there can be a people to save from judgment out of his grace so that at the right time he can send his son, a second Adam, into the world to do what the first Adam failed to do. And in that history of delay, which we are in right now, we've been in ever since the fall, God chooses at different points in the history of delay to intrude into time and space with anticipations of final judgment. There, there are these different intrusions into, the, into this time of delay that anticipate, foreshadow, warn, remind us, final judgment is coming. Now, you know some of these. The flood with Noah, that was an intrusion of judgment as a picture of final judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues on Egypt with Moses, and the conquest, there are more, but and the conquest of the Canaanites by the Israelites are all examples of God's very clear and very real warning of final judgment that is coming for everyone, everyone who has ever lived. And even Israel, Israel ended up rebelling so much that they looked just like the Canaanites, and in the end, they too got judgment. Remember Babylon? Babylon comes in, Assyria, they come in. But that picture, that picture of Israel's conquest and the Holy Land, that picture has ended. Jesus, here's Jesus saying, okay, that's done. Old Testament, it's fulfilled in Jesus. He's bringing something new. Jesus says we are no longer to hate our enemies. And that is because we are in a different situation now than Israel. We're in a different situation than the kingdom of Israel, the theocracy of Israel. That whole arrangement with Israel was an intrusion itself. God, God decided with Israel, he, he frees his people out of Egypt, takes them to Mount Sinai, and he makes them his geopolitical theocracy kingdom on earth. He carves out a geopolitical arena within the earth, the Holy Land, that promised land, this inheritance, this land of Canaan, that was the sphere, this, this, this land was the sphere that God set apart to be a picture of new heavens and new earth. Uh, within the boundaries of 
that land, this is like new heavens, new earth. So what principles apply? Well, the principles of heaven. The, the consummation ethics. The, the, so the ethics of the delay that we're in right now, the ethics you could call the ethics of common grace, those were suspended in Israel during this time of Israel uh, because Israel was a picture of heaven to come. So if you think about the, the temple itself, that was an intrusion. It was a good intrusion. God literally dwelling with his people on earth in that temple. The miracles of God in the Old Testament, and we could talk about the miracles of Jesus in the New Testament, the miracles of God in the Old Testament, that was an intrusion, a good intrusion. We like those good intrusions, the miracle stuff. We love that stuff. But you've got good intrusions and bad, what we call bad intrusions, hard intrusions, because what it, those intrusions are the inbreaking of heaven itself into time and space. So you can think heaven exists right now, and this, is the, this stuff of the conquest is an intrusion, a projection down from that present heavenly realm into this earthly realm uh, spatially, temporally. Uh, it, it, and it's pointing to the final judgment when Jesus comes back. All of these intrusions point to the final reality to come. So the Old Testament kingdom of Israel was, it was symbolic. The whole thing is like this parable. The whole thing of Israel is a symbol of the inbreaking of heaven. Spatially, temporally, all in anticipation of that final heavenly kingdom to come. So Israel was a prophetic promise pointing to heaven. This Old Testament ethical command to hate enemies, it's an aspect of that intrusion. It was not wrong for Old Testament Israel to do that. Here is judgment. It's a picture of judgment. And that Old Testament ethic, it's not a lower standard of God's holiness. No, it's the opposite. God has one standard of holiness. And in fact, the demands of these intrusion ethics in the Old Testament, can you imagine if you're Israel and you're given these commands to go and wipe out people? Like, that is very difficult for the Israelites to carry out. And it was only through incredible faith that there could be this real compliance with the demands of this ethic to hate your enemy. That said, what Jesus is saying is, this is not this is not what we do now. As in, like, you look at Israel, that's not a model for us. Even though this passage, like, even you get to... Uh, you get to Judges, you get to these Canaanite conquests. Uh, those passages were preached to George Washington and to the patriots to encourage them to, def to fight and defeat those Canaanite British. Literally, which is really funny because at the same time, the British loyalists in New York, they were preaching this same passage to the British loyalists to fight the patriot Canaanite rebels. And across the Atlantic, that same, this same stuff is being preached to King George III to encourage him to beat those Pats, those Canaanite patriots, into submission. And it's so funny, I don't know if you saw this morning before church, there's a football game going on in London right now, and they're literally singing the national anthem in a stadium full of Brits, singing about how we defeated those Canaanite British. And then, and then the Brits sing their national anthem, which is just... Here we go. Hey, that's better than uh, killing each other. Uh, 
Okay, but, but, but God makes this point really clear. Uh, like, th- this is no longer, this is no longer the model for us. If you think about, like, Jericho, like, how God supernaturally empowers the people to go and do this, how are you going to conquest this, this walled, sit, this fortified city? Now, you're going to march around it a bunch of times, then you're going to blow some trumpets, then the walls are going to come down. Okay, that's not how our military should go about protecting us, defeating enemies, you know, this is not a, the U.S. military should not adopt that strategy. Jesus comes and he says that that Old Testament stuff, it has been fulfilled in him. What Israel was, it's over. And you are not to hate your enemies now. Now you are to love your enemies. And that's because we have now returned to a common grace situation in the world. God's arrangement now for his people is we're not a kingdom on earth. We're not his geopolitical theocracy. We're the church. We're a family. We're a people on the way. We're aliens and strangers in this world. Uh, We are in a common grace situation again. Uh, We're back in that situation of the delay of God's judgment where he sends his reign on the believers and unbelievers. He makes his sun shine on believers and unbelievers. And now we love our enemies. And Jesus says, what does that look like to love your enemies? It looks like prayer. Where you pray for your enemies, you don't curse them. You pray for those who persecute you. That's, that's praying for nothing less than the salvation of your enemies. Because you really can't hate someone when you're praying for them to be saved. Even if your prayer sounds something like, God, save this moron. God, save this jerk face. Uh, That is a step in the right direction. Like, keep going. Uh, And and our love for, and our love, it's it's not just for those that, because this can be easy. Yeah, I gotta love those who think they're better than me. Okay, that's, this is also, it's for those who hate us because they think they're beneath us. This is, this is Jesus welcomed the outcasts of society. He even, he even mentions them here, the, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. He welcomed them into his fellowship. He ate and he drank with sinners. So whoever you think is lowly, who, that, that, you know, whoever you think that kind of person, oh my God, I, you know, just the scum of the earth, yeah, the gospel's for them too. And our love is for them people who we think are incredibly different from us. In reality, they are just like us. They are just like you. A sinner in desperate need of grace. We're all in desperate need of help. We're all in desperate need of saving from our sin and from death. And when our enemy suffers and we have the opportunity, we come alongside them. We cry with them. We mourn with them. And this... uh, it can be harder sometimes when, when our enemies, when unbelievers rejoice and they get success after success in this world and we have the opportunity, we rejoice with them. If you're hurt by someone and you respond by hurting them back, avenging yourself, that is to be overcome with evil. That is to be, uh, become a part of the problem. The only way to overcome evil is with good, which means when someone wrongs you, you still love them. When someone wrongs you, we're coming out of that previous passage, you show mercy, you forgive. And we must be about our enemies' 
good. To repay someone evil with evil is to want to see your enemy hurt, to make, to make them suffer as you've suffered. And, and we can either repay evil with evil or we can repay evil. Uh, uh, you can even do this by inflicting actual harm on someone or just by sitting back and doing nothing for those who are in need, hoping they get their, you know, we said last time, they get their comeuppance. And we cheer them on as they destroy themselves. That would not be loving. We don't retreat from this world to live in our own private communes, away from everyone who could disagree with us, who could potentially offend us. We don't, we don't do that. Uh, and there are going to be people in your life who are unappeasable. Try as you might to reconcile with them, to continue to extend kindness to them. They're going to be unappeasable. And what do you do? You continue to extend kindness to them. You continue to be patient with them. You continue to try to listen and try to understand. Some people just will not have peace with you. And what do you do? You hold out peace. You hold out love. We do the best we can with impossible people over a lifetime throughout this delay. And you, you should not want, we should not in our hearts, we should not want to bring down God's judgment on anybody. You should long for them to know and believe in the love and the grace of Jesus and be saved. That's being perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And ironically, this stuff, it is real to people who have a problem with Christianity. Like a very, very under, under, understandable objection to our faith is when someone who's struggling says, you know, my brother, my mom, my loved one died and they didn't believe in Jesus. I hate your Bible. I hate your God. I hate your Jesus. I hate, that. I, I hate your Jesus who would judge and condemn them. What do you do? What do you say to that? And I think one thing that would be appropriate is to be sad with them, is to struggle with them, is to be upset with them. Because every single one of you, all of us, we all know someone who, who you love so much, you would die for them. A thousand deaths. You would literally go to hell for them if it meant they could be saved. We all know those people. And some of them yet do not know Jesus. And it is, it's a horrific, awful thought. It does not, though, make God unjust. Here's another, here's another you know, so what for us. We, we in the church, we talk about this less and less and less. And more and more and more in the church deny it. Uh, from the beginning of the Bible to the end, all throughout, the Bible talks about judgment. And I, it, it does not do the church any good, any service to not talk about it. Because we don't want to be offensive. Because we want to be winsome. By not talking about it, by shying away from it more and more, we're doing a great disservice to each other and to the world. Um, again, back across the pond, one of those Brits, uh, Charles Spurgeon, he was a minister in London in the 19th century. Uh, he, he said this once, he said, why do we get flippant about the Christian life? Will too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior? He who has stood before his God convicted and condemned with a rope around his neck is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him 
and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. <clears throat> I know I'm not the only one who struggles with this. Like prayer, that can be boring. Reading the Bible can be boring. The liturgy can be boring. The sermon can be boring. Because we're bored with the whole thing. We're all susceptible to that. Either, either because you've grown up with this and this has just become routine, routine. Yeah, I've heard this, I've heard this, I've heard this. Or because, because it's hard right now. Because you came here to be uplifted, not to hear more about judgment. There are different reasons for different individuals, but one common root for all of us struggling with this, being flippant about the Christian life, is, is this at one point, at some point along the way, it stopped being real that I am a sinner who deserves judgment. My natural condition, and I think it's yours too, is to go about my day thinking, well, God loves me. And God loves me because I'm me. And I'm going to get a pass into heaven. And the truth is, I deserve justice. And I deserve judgment. I do deserve God's wrath by myself. And God has promised that one day, on that final day, He is coming back. He is coming back and He is bringing His righteous, just judgment with Him. And most of the time, in most of my days, that's just not real to me. But that doesn't make it any less real. It is this question of what will God do when He shows up? Like, how will He be able to defeat evil and save me, us? In destroying evil, He'll surely have to destroy us too because we're just as much a part of the problem. Because the problem is not... Oh, God judged the Canaanites and the Babylonians, and that's awful. The problem is he is coming to judge and vent his wrath on everybody. In a very real sense, you and me, all of us, we're all the Canaanites. We're all worthy of that final judgment, and this is the awesomeness of the gospel. The gospel is that God intrudes into the history of mankind again before that final day, and he does intrude with final judgment. But this time, it's not just a picture of final judgment. It's not just a warning. It's real, actual, final judgment. The supreme intrusion of heaven, not just a symbol, but the real thing of heaven breaking into our reality, is the guy who is saying this stuff. It's Jesus himself. Heaven breaking into reality, the Son of God coming down from heaven in the person of Jesus, the Son of God brings heaven to earth. And Jesus' redeeming death on the cross, it is the first act of final judgment. Final judgment has begun. It has intruded into space and time now. The future of heaven, it involves eternal blessing. And it also involves final judgment the final satisfaction of God's wrath against sinners, and that final judgment, it was intruded on the cross. It was intruded with Christ on the cross. The cross is an intrusion of that actual final judgment, and at the cross, you and I experience that final judgment through our faith in Jesus as he bears our sins on the cross. Our hope, this is it right here, our hope is to stand with Jesus and to lovingly and to graciously and to patiently call all to remind each other and to call all in the world to be saved from this judgment 
through his judgment for us. And with that, let's pray. Father, we lift up the name of your Son who is our Lord and Savior. And to call him Savior is no small thing. To say that we need a Savior means we need salvation from something that is going to destroy us. We need salvation from your wrath. And Father, we, we need salvation from, from your enemies. And Lord, we, we pray that you would give us uh, again that grace to go out into the world with the gospel that our enemies would be defeated right now, that they would be defeated by grace and, 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 and go from being our enemies to being our friends, to go from being our enemies to being our loved ones, to go from being our enemies to being our family. Equip us with that mighty, awesome, saving gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray right now in this delay as we love our enemies, that you would preserve us in this world, in this life. Father, either until you call us home or until you come back, <clears throat> Lord, give us faith. Help us to walk by faith, not by sight. Help us to know and understand and believe the gospel, to encourage each other here with it, to continue to proclaim it to each other with, uh, uh, with love and patience, and to hold it out to the world that is perishing without our Lord and Savior. And we pray this all, again, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.